You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com different corporate jobs I'm doing just aren't they're not working for me like I'm not 
they're not getting me out of bed in the morning, and it's not something that I'm super interested in. And I'm kind of at the eve of turning 30 at this point in my life, and I'm realizing I'm traveling all the time, and my diet is garbage, and I don't exercise enough, and I'm feeling so lousy. So I just started to read about health and nutrition to try to just get myself healthier. And then the more I read about it, the more I was like, oh, God, like, I'm really interested in this stuff. And Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock would roll around, and I'd have to put away the nutrition books and pull out my spreadsheets and check my work email. And then it kind of dawned on me, like, wait a second, what if I did this for a living? Like, aren't there jobs? Don't people do stuff in nutrition for a living? And that's kind of what set me on my journey to become a dietitian. And so I kind of went back to school in my around age 30 and started all over again. So you had never had any experience with this or interest, I mean, not interest, but you would never thought you'd be going into this field? No, not at all. I mean, I liked science very much in college, um, but it's not what I studied. Uh, I studied, like, some sort of political science stuff, and then I thought I would end up doing sort of international business stuff. Um, but it was sort of just more my own personal health journey and just trying to learn how to take care of my own body um, as I was entering an age transition in my life that I just, this interest became sparked for me, um, and it all kind of came together. So it's never too late. <laughs> so amazing that you did that. And, you know, a big part of Morph Mom and what we do is to show and to spread stories about how, you, like you just said, it's never too late. When you find something you're interested in, there's so many people out there who have made the jump and, and you know, turned directions completely at any age. And part, uh, not for nothing that's so inspiring about what you did just in general that you were so brave to make that decision and that change at that time yeah thank you I'm really happy I did it and I kind of said to myself like nowadays people are working you know no one's retiring at 65 anymore people are working into their 70s yeah. and so even if I go back to school in my 30s and it takes me three years to do this I'll still have like a 40-year career ahead of me so like so what that I'm starting in my 30s and I didn't start you know age 20 like big deal yeah and how much schooling, so you, when you began at 30, how many years of schooling did that entail? So for me, it was three years, like, full-time, including summers and winters and everything, um, because I had a lot of just undergraduate science that I had never taken in college, uh, just some basic physiology and, and chemistry and organic chemistry and the stuff that I would have taken if I had known that I wanted to do this right out of the bat. Uh, so I had to do about a year of just basic science stuff, and then on top of that, there was two years of a master's degree in clinical nutrition and also the hospital um, sort of practical training I had to do to get clinical hours in for part of my professional training. So all in all, it's three full years. So what is it exactly, and, and what does the job entail as a dietitian and, and what you do? So my job personally, and, you know, different dietitians work in different settings and have very different jobs, but I work in a doctor's office. And so I work for a gastroenterologist, um, and people come in to our office typically because they have a, a gastro complaint, a digestive problem, either that's been diagnosed or not diagnosed. Uh, and they're looking not just to treat it medically, but also to figure out sort of their diet. Uh, and so I sit down with the patient one-on-one -on -one in a room, and we sit down together for an hour, and I ask a bazillion questions and a lot of really nitty-gritty detail stuff that people might be embarrassed to initially talk about. And we get really down and dirty into the details, and I start to really listen for how different foods and different eating patterns seem to affect a person's symptoms. And based on that, 
uh, I'm able to really come up with a plan for them in terms of what changes I would make to the diet in terms of what foods you eat or how you eat them or with what frequency, what texture, and you know, any kind of variable you can think pertaining to food uh, could be in play. Uh, and based on that, we kind of start off with a plan and see how it works. And if it works great, then off you go. And if it's kind of 50% there and not 100% there, then we revisit it and tweak it and refine it until you get to a point where you feel, yes, this is working for me. This is how I need to be eating. So I'm sure, I mean, there are millions of, of different stomach ailments and diagnosis. Um, but your book specifically is The Bloated Belly Whisperer. And is bloated belly more of a generic term, or is it something that's specific to um, certain symptoms? Or what is exactly the bloated belly? So bloating is a very, very general term that a lot of people use to describe a lot of different things. And so on one hand, it's the number one complaint that people come to me with. They say, oh, I'm so bloated. But there's a very good chance that two people with that complaint are not actually describing the same feeling or experience. Uh, so for some people, bloating means this feeling of sort of fullness, uncomfortable fullness, not necessarily pain, but just ugh, overfull discomfort, tightness, pressure somewhere in the belly. For some people, bloating is an appearance thing. And so they may or may not have that tightness or fullness, but they look very often, they'll use the word pregnant. You know, I eat such and such thing, and then I look five months pregnant or nine months pregnant or one month pregnant. I get the different months. I get the trimesters often. Um, and so so sometimes it's a feeling. Sometimes it's a, an appearance. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. Uh, and, again, it's really my job to help tease out what do you actually mean when you tell me that uh, and what do I think is causing it based on our conversation. It, it, so when you say bloated, like you'll say, oh, I can't button my pants or is it actually – a visual thing many times or is it more the feeling from within? It can be either. So certain types of bloating is only a visible thing. They don't feel pressure. They don't feel full. Their appetite is unchanged. They could eat, you know, a granola bar and look nine months pregnant. Um, and then I have some other types of patients who feel incredibly full and uncomfortably full, uh, even though when you look at them, their belly is as flat as it was when they started eating. And then there's the people that kind of have a little bit of both, that they both feel uncomfortably full and they look kind of distended. And so depending on the medical condition and the underlying sort of problem, you could have anything along that spectrum. And is one easier to treat than the other? Um, I mean, definitely there's certain medical conditions that are trickier to manage than others. Um, certain medical conditions that cause bloating are really more difficult to manage and require a lot of sort of heavy-duty diet intervention plus medication plus lifestyle change. I mean, kind of all hands on deck. And some are incredibly easy to treat. Um, you know, like someone who just goes a little bit slow, transit in their colon and is kind of full of poop and really bloated. You know, in some cases, I'll put them on a magnesium supplement at bedtime, and basically in three days, they're completely better. And so, again, it really runs the gamut between really challenging to manage and somewhat easy to manage and various permutations in between. And, I, I mean, I wish I could say mine was just, what about belly fat <laughs> to, to differentiate between the two? And... um when somebody comes in sometimes, is it more a question of, you know, more that they have to lose weight as opposed to it being a bloated stomach? 
Yeah, that is sometimes the case. And sometimes it's really hard that I have to be the one to tell that to somebody. <laughs> um, but, you know, very often people can confuse belly fat with bloating, right? And so bloating is a temporary state of affairs. Very often the case, you wake up feeling somewhat flat. And then at some point during the day, you do something, you eat something, or, you know, things are building up, or there's a gas issue or something, and all of a sudden, you're distended or uncomfortable, but then several hours later, or even the next morning, you're back to flat. That's bloating. Bloating comes and goes, but there is sort of a flatter baseline. It's not really your body mass. It's something inside your digestive tract causing you to be bloated. Uh, with belly fat, it's and that's your body. It's part of you. You know, it doesn't go down in the morning or at night unless you actually lose the weight. That's actual fat mass on your belly. Uh, and that's not caused by something inside your digestive tract. That's caused by, you know, having gained weight in that particular area of your body. And so the approach for that is really more about weight loss uh, and weight management rather than sort of digestive fine-tuning. Do, do the symptoms behind bloating or the cause behind the bloating ever contribute to fat gain as well or, or you know, a, a difficulty to losing belly fat? I, mean, they, I guess they can. Indirectly, they can. And so there's certain types of medical conditions, um, you know, like, for example, people who have a really, really slow stomach. The stomach empties really, really slowly. And so when they eat, like, a really healthy, high-fiber food like a salad, they're in agony. That salad sits there for seven hours. It takes forever for their stomach to kind of process that big, bulky, roughage salad and pass it on, and they're nauseous, and they're vomiting, and they feel miserable. And so people like that will tend to gravitate towards white rice, white bread, mashed potatoes, foods that are much faster and oh, easier see. for the body to digest. And so sometimes people will gravitate towards a diet that feels better digestively that happens also to put weight on them. And so that's one example of what you're talking about that I've definitely seen. And when you do, then I guess you're leaning towards more caloric foods. So you're gaining weight in order to, to treat the bloating or to prevent the bloating and the, and the, the ailments. Exactly. Yeah, sometimes healthy foods don't feel great for certain people digestively. And sometimes, you know, for many people, you know, a burger will feel better than a salad, at least a lot of the patients that I see. And I know that, you know, that seems counterintuitive, but for certain digestive problems, sometimes the healthier the food, the worse it feels. Um, and when that can be the case, sometimes people are like, oh, God, the only food that feels good in my stomach is a bagel. You know, everything else really hurts. Yeah. A bagel is always my safe food that just it really calms my stomach. It soothes my stomach. It never gives me trouble. Um, and so it can be hard, you know, on the waistline if you're kind of living on bagels and you can't eat a lot of vegetables. What do you do if that's the case? Like, what is your recommendation in those situations? I mean, you know, there's a few things. So the first is if you can get to the medical, the underlying medical cause, very often there are medical treatments to help that, right? And so sometimes there's medications or procedures. If you can get a patient diagnosed into a doctor, sometimes the underlying problem can be corrected or at least improved with medicine. Um, in terms of diet, you know, I think that there's a lot that you can do with texture modification. So, for example, you may feel horrible after eating a kale salad, but I bet I could put a kale smoothie together for you that would empty your stomach pretty 
readily and still give you the nutrition of vegetables and fruits and healthy things. Um, and so, you know, in a case like that, I might be looking more at like soups and smoothies and, and purees and things like that where you can kind of eat some more healthy foods, um, but in a texture that your stomach can process a little bit more readily. So you're still getting the nutrients just sort of in an easier way, easier to your stomach. Exactly. So what do you see, and I guess it's a conundrum, right? If, if, if you need the nutrients but you're having a hard time digesting them, what are some of the nutrients, the important nutrients, that are at the same time harder on the stomach and that may cause more bloating? Well, I mean, the first one, obviously, that comes to mind has to be fiber, right? So fiber is a really important part of a healthy diet. It nourishes the the gut microbiota, right, that ecosystem of bacteria that we rely on for so many health outcomes. They need fiber to live. Uh, we all need fiber for colon cancer prevention and other digestive cancer preventions. We need it to help us poop regularly in the bathroom. Um, but certain types of fiber can be really, really gassy for people, and other types of fiber can give people upper digestive problems if they're slow or if they're really oversensitive in the stomach. Then eating a lot of fiber can maybe make them feel acid refluxy or nauseous. Or um, And so, you know, fiber is always a really tricky one because, you know, you're kind of looking for that magic balance of just enough fiber to help keep people regular without aggravating problems, thinking about the types of fiber that are least likely to be gassy for someone who's predisposed to too much gas. Um, and so there's a lot of different characteristics of fiber that I'm looking at to try to give people the healthiest diet that they can comfortably tolerate. In your experience, like, have there been some cases that were like, I guess, almost true puzzles, in a sense, where you sort of thought you might go one direction, end up going another direction. Like, you've ever had some interesting cases like that where you really never expected the, the way it was going to end up? I mean, for sure. I mean, I would say, like, 95% of the people who I see nowadays, like, usually, like, the first one or two things I think is going on is really what is going on. Um, but, you know, there have been a handful of patients over the years that, like, have really stumped me. And, like, to this day, right, I was, I just, I couldn't figure out, their doctor couldn't figure out, like, five other doctors couldn't figure out. Like, it's not common, and it's not even necessarily once a year, but over the course of my career, like, there have just been some real stumpers. And then there have been some people that just on a whim, I asked them to go get a test, never thinking that it could possibly be that because their symptoms didn't really resemble that and turned out to be that one thing. And I'm like, I really can't, like, I really pulled that out of thin air because I had no idea what was going on with you. And I was right, and I kind of can't believe it. And now they think I'm a genius, even though I was totally guessing. And so that's happened, too, and that always feels good. Um but, you know, it's a challenge. The fun thing about my job is that, like, every person who walks in that door is its a surprise. It's like a present. You know, it's like I have no idea what they're going to tell me. I have no idea what their story is. And they're going to, you know, they're going to say something that I've never heard before. I learn so much from my patients still to this day. Which, again, goes back to the whole reason we even do more fun about how exciting it is that you can make a change in life like you did. I mean, at 30 and change to doing something you clearly love and every single day challenges you and you love the challenge. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I would have thought that after, you know, almost a decade just in a gastroenterologist's office, it's like there's a finite set of conditions, I guess, that could affect the gut. You'd think like once you've seen 10, you've seen, or you've seen 100, you've seen them all. 
But, I mean, everyone's life is different, right? And so even if the condition is the same, the person's different and their circumstances and how it affects them and, and their particular, you know, food challenges. Like, they might have this problem, but they're also allergic to five different foods. And you're like, oh, God, well, now I'm kind of doing this, you know, standing on one foot with a hand tied behind my back, you know, or someone with, like, that upper stomach problem where their stomach is slow, and then they tell me, I hate soup. And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> how am I going to feed you if you don't like soup? And so, you know, there's always, like, some strange random set of challenges that you may be faced with, even if the condition itself is something you've seen a million times before. And so it keeps things interesting. How do you know when it's time to go to the doctor? That So let's say your stomach is bloated and maybe – you're almost saying, no, I've gained some weight. You're not really thinking it's a medical condition more, I, I don't know. Are there symptoms? Are there signs when it's like, you know, maybe I do need to go get this checked out? I mean, I guess the first answer to that question is there's sort of this, a short list of what we call alarm symptoms that if you're having these things, you should get yourself to a doctor quickly, right? And I talk about them in my book, but it's basically like if there's blood in your poop, if you're vomiting, if you're losing weight and you don't know why, if you, you know, have like an iron deficiency or some sort of, you know, nutrient deficiency, if you're turning yellow, you know, like if things really start to be in that concerning arena, get to a doctor. Um, but in general, like if there is a problem that is bothering you chronically to the point where it's affecting your quality of life. And so what I often see is that people start to make these sort of like these minor adjustments to accommodate the problem. And over time, it really starts to impact their quality of life. They decide, you know what, I'm not going to go get the season tickets to the theater this year because I get too nervous having to go to the theater if I have to use the bathroom and there's such a long line, there's only one ladies' room. I'm just going to skip the theater tickets this year. And then my friends are going on this vacation, a spa vacation together. But you know what? I'm really nervous about the travel. I'm going to sit that one out. Or I'm a substitute teacher, but I just I said no to a job because I'm nervous about my stomach in the morning and how unpredictable it is. I'm just going to say no to that job. If you start to notice that your digestive problems are causing you to sort of revolve your life around them, that's an issue. You need to get help for that because that's not okay. You know, your stomach's not the boss of you. You're the boss of yeah, you. Right. Um, and so if you start to see that happening, I think that it's time. You know, people just think, oh, it's, I've been dealing with this for a long time. It's not a big deal. I'm just used to it. Um, and then we kind of allow ourselves to get used to really unacceptable things. Are there, um, I guess, like certain triggers you see a lot with this? Like, uh, you know, Certain foods were right off the bat, you could say, you know, if you avoided X, Y, and Z, let's try it there first. Like certain, you know, certain things that are very, that are more commonly cause problems. I don't know, oil, or I don't know what it would be. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, definitely very high-fat meals can trigger mm-hmm. problems for people with a very wide variety of problems, um, both problems that originate in the stomach as well as the intestines. So often really fatty things can be an issue for a variety of people. Um and I won't name names, but, you know, there's a lot of different, like, fiber bars, like these protein bars with, like, absurd amounts of fiber in them. Um, a lot of these things are just a digestive nightmare for people. Um, okay. You know, bars in general are a really treacherous category of food for people with digestive problems. Um, between the, the sweeteners and the sugars they use to the added fiber that they put into the source of the protein, there's often something in one of those bars that's going to bother 
someone who has a digestive problem. And so those can be a little bit tricky. Yeah, bars are tricky for people. Because you go to reach for those thinking, oh, this is a healthy alternative, and yet it's maybe instigating or aggravating some of the problems. Well, for sure, which kind of goes back to the point that just because something's healthy, it doesn't mean it's going to feel good yeah. in your digestive system, right? Um, so kind of getting away from this idea that just because it's healthy, therefore, it should feel good. You know, that's not always the case. Now, are there some healthier foods that are generally speaking, and I know not everyone's the same, or typically easier on the stomach? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think, you know, when I think about whole grains and fiber and things like that, you know, oatmeal is probably one of the gentler, okay. more universally well-tolerated whole grains. Some people have a hard time with whole wheat and wheat bran and things like that, but oats and oat bran typically um, can be a little bit easier to digest for more people for a variety of reasons. Um, so people do well with that. Um, in the vegetable department, you know, generally speaking, zucchini and cooked string beans are always um, some of the gentler choices, uh, cooked carrots as well. Um, you know, bananas and, and blueberries are often some of the fruits that people do well with. And so there are definitely sort of these healthy foods that people with a variety of bloating issues often find to be their safer, healthy foods. Now, what about dairy? Does that cause a lot of issues? It depends. Uh, for people who are lactose intolerant, it sure does. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah, for sure. And and a lot of people who are not of sort of Northern European Caucasian ancestry, which is, you know, the majority, I think, of, of people in the world, uh, dairy can be a huge problem into adulthood. Um, but certain forms of dairy will probably be more problematic than others. Um, some are higher in lactose than others. Uh, and so that's always a consideration with dairy that you have to really ask, well, what kind of dairy? Like, are we talking about liquid milk? Are we talking about you know, a sprinkle of Parmesan cheese on your, you know, right. pasta. Um, and so there's gradations of how likely dairy is to bother someone. Um, and then, you know, kind of coming back to dairy, there's the fat issue, right? And so fat can be triggering for a lot of people, whether it's from dairy or not. And so sometimes people will say, oh, I have a problem with dairy. But really what they have a problem with is like, you know, eating a pint of Haagen-Dazs or like a super gooey, cheesy, you know, big ziti, um, which, you know, you got to wonder... Is it is the fat maybe playing a role there? And if you had like you know a zero percent Greek yogurt, would it still bother you as much? So, again, going back to bloating and the, and the more general term of bloating, um, inflammation keeps getting you hear that word a lot, and they say you know a gluten free diet will negate or maybe take down some of the inflammation. It, does that have something to do with bloating and? Or are these two unrelated things? Oh, girl, do you have an hour to talk about inflammation? We can talk <laughs> about this. I mean, this is like a whole separate topic. But, you know, in the basically in the book that I've written, which is kind of like the top ten most common causes of bloating, uh, only one of them is inflammatory. So let's start oh. there. Most okay. of the bloating I talk about in my book is not inflammatory at all. And so, and that's a lot of the trouble is that people have all these troubles. They go to their gastroenterologist. They get scoped from up top. They get scoped from down below, if you know what I mean. And the doctor yeah. looks inside the digestive tract. He's like, no, nope, everything looks normal to me. Nothing's inflamed. Like, you're fine. Um, and it can be very frustrating because people have this feeling, this sensation that it must be inflammatory. Um, but very often it's more functional in nature, that things just aren't 
moving or working, the nerves and the muscles just aren't working the way they're supposed to be working, or there's too much bacteria or something's being malabsorbed, but none of those things are inflammatory. Um, and so I think that a lot of people are quick to assume that their gut problems are inflammatory when, in fact, there certainly are gut problems that are inflammatory, and some of those gut problems cause bloating. I mean, someone with Crohn's disease will often feel very bloated, and people with ulcerative colitis, which is inflammatory, will feel bloated. Um, but that's not the, the common, that's not the norm. Um, and so understanding that most bloating is not inflammatory. Um, and secondly, that it's not really a given that gluten is inflammatory for most people across the board, and I know that's probably controversial and someone's going to throw a rock through my window tonight for saying that, but <laughs> it's not really shown to be particularly inflammatory for the greater population. And, I mean, I get it. People don't want to eat it for whatever reason. Like, don't eat it. Like, I don't have a gluten agenda in either direction, but I often think that it's falsely blamed, and so what happens is people will assume I have a gut problem, A, it's inflammatory, B, it must be gluten, then they get rid of the gluten and they still don't feel better. So clearly it wasn't the gluten, but then when I kind of go back to them and I'll say, well, you know, are you going to reintroduce the gluten? It's like, no, well, no. <laughs> I couldn't reintroduce the gluten, even though it wasn't that and that, you know, didn't make them feel better. And so I think that there's a lot of sort of scapegoating of gluten that's probably misplaced. Um, so there's that. <laughs> so... If someone came in and you were trying to explain, you know, you're trying to explain to a patient, okay, th there's a distinction between the inflammation you're talking about and the bloating. What would sort of like the, you know, the definition, or, or how would you explain that to like a layman? The difference almost between the bloating and the inflammation. So inflammation is something that can objectively be observed, right? Like inflammation isn't something we have to guess if it's happening. It's something that can be seen. Like, there's markers in your blood. If they're high, it suggests an inflammatory condition. If a doctor, again, kind of gives you an endoscopy or a colonoscopy, they can see inflammation. They can biopsy tissue and see white blood cells, which are a marker of inflammation. So inflammation isn't something that we have to wonder or guess whether or not you have. We can prove it with testing. And very often, by the time a patient comes to me, they've often had a lot of that testing. Um, and they come to see me as, like, the last resort. And so the testing has already kind of shown that it is not an inflammatory condition. And so, and, and that's not to say that there's not something wrong with them. Like, clearly, if you're miserable, there's something wrong with you. But I think that we have to um, have a broader perspective about, you know, just because you don't feel good, it doesn't mean that there is an inflamed tissue, that there is, you know, too many white blood cells causing inflammation. Like, that's not always the only reason that someone could feel badly, and that's not the only reason something in the gut could be off. So with inflammation, like when you said sort of a white, a higher white cell count, does that indicate sort of like a bacteria as opposed to a bloating? Not necessarily. And so like in the case of celiac disease, that's a good example. And so what happens in celiac disease is you're ha this is an autoimmune condition. It's an autoimmune reaction <laughs> where the body mistakes gluten uh, for this invading pathogen, like this, you know, terribly bad thing, and it starts actually a self-directed attack against the gut, and all these white blood cells rush to the gut and kind of start attacking your own intestinal cells, and it causes all this damage, and there's all this, you know, inflammation and all these, like, white blood cells there that shouldn't be there, and a doctor will go in with, you know, their scope, and they'll take biopsies, and when they look under the microscope, they see all that damage, they see, you know, way more white blood cells there than there should be there, and that's very clear. 
Um, there's other inflammatory conditions in the throat, uh, in the esophagus, for example, where people have all this trouble swallowing and food is getting stuck. And so a doctor can, again, go down with a, an endoscope and take a biopsy. And when they look at it under the microscope, there's all these other types of white blood cells there. And so, um, and that's sort of this, uh, an allergic type or immune type reaction. And so it's not always an infection. Sometimes it's an immune system reaction that can be causing inflammation. Um, and sometimes, you know, in Crohn's disease is another kind of autoimmune disease uh, where there is inflammation. And so it's not necessarily like an infection, although it could be, right? Like you could have like an infectious uh, inflammation in your colon from salmonella, you know, a colitis from salmonella or from food poisoning. Um, and, but again, these are all things that can be observed and measured. And in someone with a chronic condition who's already been tested for those things and it's been ruled out, we have to look elsewhere and we have to um, have an op- a more open mind that maybe this is something that's not inflammatory, maybe it's functional. And in your book, and again, we're talking with the bloated belly whisperer right now, um, you talk about a, a, a diagnostic quiz. That I guess things, that, so what are some of the things that when, when somebody comes into you to figure this out, where do you begin? I mean, the first thing I'm trying to really narrow down is geography. Where do I think this bloating is originating? Is it originating in your stomach or your intestines? That's kind of like the first thing that I'm trying to figure out, and I try to replicate that in my quiz. Um, And often you can get to that pretty quickly by just asking a patient to point where in their abdomen, where they experience the bloating. Is it really up top, kind of right underneath the rib cage? Is it down below beneath the belly button? Is it associated with other symptoms? So if someone is belching a lot, it's probably more likely stomach and upper GI tract. If they're farting a lot, it's probably, you know, intestines and lower GI tract. And so a few simple questions about associated symptoms and kind of the geography of the bloating can already kind of help me narrow down, you know, the subset of issues that could be in play just based on the location. And so that's always the first place that I start. And once that's determined, and could it be both? I mean, do you encounter it sometimes? Sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, bloating likes to travel in pairs. So sometimes, really? Yeah, sure. I mean, sometimes people can have separate issues that are just unrelated. Sometimes people can have an underlying problem that affects both the upper and the lower GI tract. So, for example, slowness, slow motility can affect both the stomach and the intestine. And so, you know, if you have just globally slow digestive motion, um, you'll experience both upper GI problems, nausea, reflux, belching, and you'll also experience lower GI symptoms like constipation and gas pain and things like that. Um, And so often they do travel in pairs, um, and certain conditions can cause both upper and GI symptoms as well, like uh, having too much bacteria in the small intestine sometimes can manifest in intestinal problems like diarrhea or constipation, but sometimes it can give people acid reflux and and belching and nausea. And so, you know, it's not as clean cut as that, but very often um, you can really isolate it to one area, and that's certainly the first thing I try to do. If you encounter that it's the slow-moving thing that you are mentioning that could affect both upper and lower, what generally is like a first step there? Is it changing your diet? Is it changing what you're eating? Is, does exercise help with that? Uh, not tremendously. I mean, maybe a little bit, but I mean, the first step is getting someone to a doctor to actually get a diagnosis, right? To understand mm-hmm. sort of if there is indeed slow motility everywhere, because again, these are things where there are medical interventions that can be helpful. 
Um, but certainly if I suspect it, I don't need to wait for a diagnosis. I can put somebody on the diet that I think is going to help them and see if they start to feel better even before they've made an appointment to see a doctor. Like that's the beauty of diet. Um, there's not so many circumstances where starting the diet before you have a diagnosis is going to impede your diagnosis. You can kind of parallel path it for most things, not for everything. Um, and so, uh, often I'll just put them on the diet as if I'm assuming that they have that medical condition and based on how they respond to the diet, it's just another data point. It's another clue that they can then bring to their doctor and say, you know, I talked to my dietitian. She wants me to have this test because she's worried that I might have this and she put me on this diet and this is how I feel being on this diet. I feel 20% better, 50% better, 90% better, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so certainly, um, we can kind of parallel path both the diagnosis and the diet treatment. And we mentioned this early before how sometimes like a protein bar can be a little bit more difficult uh, when you're experiencing issues. So let's say you do come across this and you were saying it's a a slower motion, it's affecting upper and lower. What is something generally you would suggest that they remove from their diet that may help with speeding things up, I guess? Well, if you're looking to speed things up out of the stomach, the thing you want to remove from the diet is texture, right? So, I mean, I basically tell all my patients, your stomach is a blender. That's basically its job in life. It's to blender your food because there's this teensy-weensy little hole at the bottom, and food needs to be liquefied enough to squirt out that hole. And so if your stomach blender is kind of broken, (laughs) right, like it's, Right. You know, you it's supposed to, when you press go, and it's supposed to go, rawr, 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 but your stomach blender is just like, rawr, rawr. <laughs> right? Like, you want to do whatever you can do to kind of pre-blenderize the food for your half-broken stomach blender. And so you're really thinking about the texture of what goes down. And so, for example, if you're someone who loves to snack on a handful of raw almonds every day at 3 o'clock, I might suggest to you, maybe let's try some butter instead of the almonds, right? Or... You know, again, if you're someone who just can't get enough of kale salads, I'll say maybe we could do like a kale soup <laughs> with like tiny little chopped pieces of kale that are cooked out nice and soft and slow. Um, and, you know, if you're a vegetarian and you're eating a lot of, you know, like lentils with all those skins that, you know, could take forever for your stomach to break down, maybe I'll suggest that you do a hummus instead because it's already pureed. Um, and so I'm trying to work with you on kind of the texture to help your broken stomach blender just empty faster. And would it be the case in reverse if you're maybe processing it too quickly, maybe adding texture would slow things down? Almost, yeah. And so people who have what we call rapid transit, and so there's a lot of people who are prone to diarrhea because things just move through their gut really, really quickly. There's a specific type of fiber called soluble fiber that actually slows down your bowel transit. Um, It's kind of like I tell people to picture in their head what it looks like when you pour dry oats into water because uh, oats are really rich in soluble fiber. And if you walk away for five minutes, you come back, they've absorbed all that water, and it's like just a thick, viscous, gooey, gummy mass. Yeah. And that's how it behaves in your gut. It, it holds onto water and moisture, and it kind of slows down and goes through your gut at its sticky, viscous, slow, loping pace. Um, and for someone who's prone to diarrhea or kind of urgency and running to the bathroom with these loose, crampy stools all the time, um, having a diet rich in that particular type of fiber can slow them down and be really helpful in regulating. Uh, sometimes even a supplement of just that isolated soluble fiber can be really helpful too. Um, and so there's food that can speed you up. There's food that can speed you down. 
Um, and definitely, again, listening to a patient's problem and understanding what they need uh, will help me make a really relevant recommendation. How do you feel about um, dietary supplements or, I guess, probiotics? Or, you know, not, Do you focus more on the food specifically or the supplements as well? I definitely dabble in supplements because, you know, sometimes for people, like, there's one particular supplement that can be life-changing for them. So I'm not, like, anti-supplements by any means. Um, but I do think that dietary supplements are really overused and abused mm-hmm. um, and that most bloating problems are not going to be solved by a magic pill. Um, and there's probably a handful of less less, maybe a half dozen, six to eight supplements that I really use routinely in my practice and maybe like another half dozen that I use very occasionally and that's pretty much it. Um, I'm not a big pill pusher. Um, I don't think that the solution to most bloating problems is going to be found in a pill Um, and I sometimes will have patients coming to me after having kind of gone the more alternative medicine route and they will come to me on easily two dozen, three dozen supplements a day And if you're on that many pills and you have a digestive problem, I can assure you that those pills are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now, any other sort of dietary remedies that you are more inclined to give some to somebody, more more of a generic sort of let's try this, let's try that? I mean, again, it'll always be tailored to the problem. But, like, I mean, kind of the things, and I talk about these in my book, it's like we spoke about the soluble fiber. It's miraculous for people who are prone to diarrhea with, like, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea predominant. Sometimes soluble fiber is literally the only thing they need to, like, get their life back. Um, And on the flip side, people who are prone to constipation or IBS predominant, uh, constipation predominant IBS, sometimes just (laughs) a magnesium supplement at night is like that little extra push they need to be like pooping regularly and feel so much more relief. And so, you know, those are two things that I use really regularly. Um, You know, for people who are kind of prone to chronic um, abdominal pain and crampiness, there's a a particular type of peppermint oil pill that works really, really well that there's some good evidence for that my patients have done well with. Um, And so, again, there are things that I do reach for um, that are tailored to specific problems but, again, if you say, like, oh, I have a bad stomach, you know, that doesn't tell, like, therefore I should take X, Y, and Z. No, 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 no. I need to really understand what kind of bad stomach you have because the peppermint oil would be a nightmare for you if your bad stomach is acid reflux. Uh, peppermint is a reflux trigger. And so if your bad stomach is acid reflux, then that peppermint oil is a nightmare for you. But if you've got crampy IBS, that peppermint oil is your best friend. So, again, it kind of comes back to tailoring the product to the problem. I was just going to ask you that, too, about peppermint. So, you know, if you even with morning sickness or whatever it is, whatever your stomach ailment, peppermint does seem to help a lot of times. But it, can it hurt? I mean, I, I, yes, you, I know you mentioned it can hurt if, you, if your problem is more acid reflux. But other than that, would it I mean, hurt you in any way? The main concern, right, is acid reflux because peppermint can trigger reflux. And I think that in pregnancy, women are supposed to be careful with uh, peppermint as well because it can relax smooth muscle. And what you don't want it to do is relax the smooth muscle too much of your uterus um, and kind of cause any kind of, you know, contractions and things like that. Um, But otherwise, the worst that could happen is you'll get, you know, minty belt, like minty heartburn, and then you just won't take it again. I mean, it's a pretty safe supplement when you take it as directed um, and you don't overdo it. 
Um, now, this is the question I'm scared to ask to get the answer to about how could alcohol affect uh, bloating. And I'm a beer drinker. I don't like hard alcohol or any other kind. Do certain alcohols like beer as opposed to, you know, I don't know, vodka or something contribute more to bloating? Sure. <laughs> Darn it. Beer, beer in particular. Um, oh, yeah. I knew that was going to be the answer. <laughs> but again, like not for everyone. Like it's if, if it doesn't bother you, then by all means, right? But, you know, <laughs> some people find that of all the different types of alcohol, beer can be among the more bloating. It can create more gas in the intestine just because of uh, the origin, like the wheat and the byproducts of the wheat um, and barley um, fermentation process can leave some gassy carbohydrates for people. Um, there's the volume issue with beer, right? Like it's just a lot more liquid that you're drinking when you're drinking beer compared to like, yeah. you know, vodka. Um, and so sometimes just the sheer volume of it can be an issue for people. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, like unless you're very, very anxious and you're, and, and you're bloating and your GI problem is related to anxiety, in which case alcohol can often be relaxing and make you feel better. And I've seen that too, by the way. Um, generally speaking, people with chronic digestive problems, alcohol will aggravate them to some degree. Um, and it's just a question of, you know, finding the lesser of all the evils if you want to continue to drink. What alcohol usually is least, uh, or causes the least amount of bloating? Vodka. Okay. But you have to be careful what you mix it with, right? So if you're right. mixing vodka with all these, like, fruity mixers full of high fructose corn syrup, like, some people can be aggravated by that. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, vodka, like a vodka soda is always really safe. Yeah. Um, boring, but safe. Um, people typically do well with it. I'm in big trouble because, again, I'm just a beer drinker, so shoot. So now we got to find bloating remedies for that. Um, but what about... Um, you just mentioned like corn syrup, like salt versus sugar. Do does salt or and or sugar cause more bloating? So I think sometimes people conflate um, fluid retention with bloating, and so people often will say that like salty foods are bloating, and what they really mean is that salty foods make me retain water, and they make my face and my fingers look puffy and swollen. Right. Um, and certain people are more susceptible to that than others, for sure. Um, that's not a digestive system bloating. That's just like a there's too much fluid in my tissues until I drink enough water to flush <laughs> to flush myself out. Um, and your kidneys will generally take care of that within a day or a day and a half or something um, if they're working well. Um, so salt can cause fluid retention, which some people will experience as being having a bloated appearance, but not necessarily in their belly. That's more like in their face, in their ring finger, <laughs> you know, in right. their ankles. Um, so that's that. And as far as sugar, you know, again, different sugars uh, are processed differently in the gut. And so depending on who you are, different sugars can have a different effect in terms of gas and bloating. So, for example, you know, everyone's heard of lactose intolerance just about, but fewer people have heard of fructose intolerance. And it's kind of a similar thing that, it, you know, it affects a smaller number of people, but there are people who, when they eat a certain type of sugar called fructose, which is naturally found in certain fruits and in honey, but also in processed foods that are made with high fructose corn syrup, they get really, really gassy and they get diarrhea and bloating, just like someone who's lactose intolerant would feel if they drank milk. 
Um, and so for some people, that type of sugar can be a problem. Um, generally speaking, I know people don't like to hear this, but white sugar for the vast majority of people is the most digestible and least <laughs> likely to bloat you. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not saying we should all go out and eat a ton of white sugar, but it's the easiest for most people to digest. And so it's much less likely to cause bloating than other types of sugar. And, and how about a sugar as opposed to like a, I'm going to say a saccharin or, you know, the, 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 the sugar substitutes? So, again, it kind of depends on which sugar substitute. Some of them are more what we would call GI neutral than others. And so, you know, like pure stevia, for example, doesn't seem to have an effect on the bowel that anyone's been able to detect. And so that seems to be pretty agreeable, although certain name brands of stevia will have an added ingredient. So like Truvia, for example, has something called erythritol added to it. And erythritol is a type of sort of, it's called a sugar alcohol. Um, and many people find that quite bloating and gassy. Um, and so, you know, it can even depend on the brand in that case. Um, sucralose or Splenda in small amounts typically seems to be okay, but when you get into like sort of the mega doses of it can be a little bit more gassy and bloating. But I mean, unless you're like, you know, having like, you know, five to 10 packets a day, you're usually going to be fine with a small amount of sucralose from a bloating perspective. Um, and so, you know, different sweeteners again will have different effects on the bowel for different people. <laughs> and, and we talked earlier that exercise may not have any it may not have any bearing on the bloating, but what if you were exercising and people say, you know, then go have a big, uh, have a protein shake. How do you feel about that? You know, it depends on the person. So, I mean, like for some people, exercise can actually get their bowels moving well. And so, you know, people who are, who find themselves kind of chronically constipated will often find that when they're exercising regularly, it does help them stay regular in the bathroom. And so I don't want to say that exercise is completely irrelevant. It's not necessarily uh, so a protein shake after exercise, it just depends how you feel, you know. It depends. Um, if you don't have GI problems and you want to have a protein shake after you work out, be my guest. Um, if you do like a protein shake, then you need to look at the brand if you have a GI problem and look at the ingredients in that brand. What sweeteners are they using? What protein source are they using? Are they adding fibers and, what, and probiotics and prebiotics? Are they adding stuff to the protein powder? that could be objectionable to your delicate digestion. Um, and so there are brands of protein powders that I, you know, recommend to my patients who like to use them um, and so that are kind of more digestively neutral. Um, so for someone who wants to use a protein powder, there are products out there that should be agreeable. Um, but don't be surprised if you are chronically bloated and you also use a protein powder to learn that your protein powder could be part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, and what about late night binging? That is, or late night snacking is probably not the best thing for it. No, that's not great um, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, the first is like like late night means that you're probably going to be lying down in bed within you know three hours of eating a very large amount of food. And you know your stomach, even a healthy, normal, well functioning stomach, takes a couple hours to empty. And so if you're kind of locked down within, you know, two, three hours of eating a large amount of food, especially if it's a higher fat food, it's going to repeat on you, right? You're going to have some reflux potentially. Um, and that can cause a lot of, you know, upper stomach bloating, heartburn, pain. I mean, and sometimes people will wake up in the middle of the night with pain from reflux and that can feel like you're having a heart attack. It can be really, really yeah. scary. Um, and so, you know, for people predisposed to upper GI problems, eating a lot at 
late at night can be a problem. And then some people find that even if that's not an issue, they wake up the next morning kind of still feeling full because, you know, overnight our digestive tract slows down. Our stomach doesn't empty as quickly. Our bowel isn't really moving very much overnight. Um, And so you might wake up in the morning with, you know, 20% of that late night binge still kind of sitting in your stomach and then you kind of feel like heavy and nauseous and bloated and full um, and just like, you know, starting the day with that, just that heaviness and that discomfort. Any suggestions for when that does happen? Like, is there something you could do? I've got to go to work. I've got to get here. And I've, I've just woken up with this, you know, belly bloat. I don't know what to do. Is there anything that's not a, not a, a, a permanent fix, but like a quick fix that can at least help you feel a little bit better? <sighs> you know, <laughs> if you're feeling kind of like acidy, raw, you know, sour stomach, then certainly chewing a Tums or kind of some taking some sort of antacid can kind of give you a little bit of uh, relief in the moment. Um, and so that's something that some people can try. Um, you know, sometimes just like drinking warm liquids, probably not coffee, but maybe like a warm tea, even like a ginger tea or something, um, which, you know, ginger has a very anti-nausea effect. And sometimes the warm liquid can just start to get things moving out of the stomach a little bit more expeditiously and kind of help clear that residual blood, you know, quicker. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that could be something that you would do in the morning. Um, but I think for, you know, in, in, in my world, I really, I work on prevention, which is if this is a habit, if this is something that happens to you a lot, we have to really understand why are you so predisposed to kind of late night overeating? Um, and very often it has its roots earlier in the day with some of your behaviors earlier in the day. So I can't believe it's only have a few minutes left, but for those of us that binged and binged and <laughs> over binged over the past few months through the holidays, any you know, a few suggestions about some healthy foods that when we're going out there, we should look to eat, you know, maybe replace other things with. And if you're maybe your top five suggestions that you think would be a good way to start the new year. I mean, I personally am such a huge fan of soups. And I like, you know, I think especially this time of year when it's really cold out and you want something comforting, you don't always want to eat like a salad in January. Like sometimes right. that, like, that just, it's like, very comforting to sit down with like a warm bowl of, you know, cabbage um but soups are liquid salad right like it's it's comforting it's warm but it's light it's low fat unless you're doing some like bacon cheesy creamy soup but you know like a a healthy-ish kind of soup and you're getting your veggies and you're getting the vitamins but it is a comforting experience to eat it and it's a nice texture it's easy to digest and all the vitamins are still in there and so i really love to get people eating more soup in the winter time um, because it's both healthy and, you know, appealing um, and, you know, pretty easy for a variety of people to digest. And so for me, that's kind of one of the things that I lean a lot on in my practice and also in my life. And how about fruit? What would, it, what would a good fruit you would suggest that maybe is not as harsh on your stomach but, you know, provides the nutrition that we need? Yeah, I think people typically do really well with um, kiwi fruit is a really nice winter fruit uh, this time of year. It's soft. It doesn't have any too gassy sugars in there. Um, It's small. Um, So people do really well with kiwis. Most people typically do well with um, blueberries as well, although this time of year they're not really in season. But even frozen, you know, like frozen blueberries are easy to keep around and, you know, throw those in some oatmeal. That's delish. Um, and, you know, sometimes people who find that citrus really bothers them, like they can't really eat an orange or a grapefruit, find that those cute little clementines this time of year 
um, can sit pretty well because a they're really small, <laughs> um, yeah. and b they uh, often they're not as acidic, and so sometimes those clementines are just an easy thing to throw in your bag and they don't get mushed, and so uh, those are a nice go-to as well. I think you mentioned earlier vegetables that green beans would be green beans and zucchini uh, typically are really well tolerated. Cooked carrots people do well with. Um, a lot of the, the roasted winter squashes are very agreeable digestively. You know, acorn squash, kabocha squash, things like that um, are really easy to digest um, and very in season right now. And so, um, again, you know, we're not really necessarily in uh, kale salad season. And so I think that there's a lot of winter fruits and vegetables uh, and foods that are going to be healthy and easy to digest and help get you feeling back on track in terms of just healthy eating after the holidays. And completely against what I just said about overeating for the holidays, what dessert would you suggest, just in case, at this time, if you're just not ready to give it all up yet? Huh. So I guess nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, so, I mean, dangerous question. So, I mean, the thing that I've been keeping around my house, if I just need, like, a little something, is they sell these, like, cute little chocolate-covered banana bites. Um, okay. I've seen them at Trader Joe's and I've seen them at the supermarket I shop at. And what's really nice about them is that they're just like these little individual things, like they're little slices. So it's like you can pop like three or four in your mouth if you just need like a little something kind of sweet. Um, but we're really trying to maybe not have a pint of ice cream in the house right now <laughs> because it's just calling, like it's just too much. Um, and so I think like those like chocolate covered banana bites are just like a nice little treat that's not, you know, it shouldn't put anyone too terribly over the edge. Um, I think those are nice. You know, I try not to keep too many sweet things in the house because if they're there, then I'm just going to eat them. Um, but that's something that I will keep around that I feel pretty safe around. <laughs> I, I can't believe we're out of time. This was so much fun, and I learned so much, and I have so many more questions. <laughs> um, but, again, it was an honor to have you on tonight. Jamar Duke Foyman, you're amazing what you've done, what you've accomplished, just even just encouraging us all that we can – we can do what we want to do later in life. We can take the initiative to follow a dream and, and go through with it whenever we want to do it. Um, everyone go out and get this book today, The Bloated Belly Whisper. Tara, what's the best way to get this, to get the book and to reach out to you? Well, you can uh, visit me on my website, which is thebloatedbellywhisperer.com. Uh, and the book is available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore. It's, it's out there in the world. Thank God. I'm so happy it's out there in the world. <laughs> going to help my belly. Um, I can't thank you enough again for coming on tonight. I'd love to have you back sometime. And um, it really, it's been an absolute joy speaking with you today and, and helping us. And hopefully in the future, I'm going to try and cut back on beer and desserts. But um, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, everyone out there, thank you for listening. And we'll see you again next week. Good night, everyone. Hi, I'm Danny Ilo. You may know me as an actor, but one of the things that I'm most proud of is my service to this country. In the Army, I saw firsthand how training and discipline instill the values that create great leadership abilities and a can-do spirit. Those same strong values stay with service members when they return to civilian life and enter the workplace. So remember to hire smart and bet on a vet. To learn more, call 888-44-SALUTE. Blue Heroes. I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you are to summer every year and how the summer to drag on and you couldn't school? Your old friend, new friends, books, and a new should have been excited about music class too because that was a special room where you went to sing 
perform with your friends and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music. Remember our music teachers because